Good morning. Hello. It's so good to see you. Um, so uh, this uh, last weekend, my car broke down. And uh, for those who have ever been in that spot, it, it didn't conveniently break down on my schedule or at my home. Um, it broke down while I was at uh, University Ave near Target. And I kind of heard this loud kind of pop, uh, this squeal, this smoke, and um, like, oh, I don't think that's normal. And uh, kind of looking at my dashboard, because I really don't know that much about cars, and um, started driving and noticing that on, on my dashboard, the temperature gauge, the little thing that you know tells you how hot your engine is, um, starts to climb, which is not something I typically look at. So I just kind of got lucky, and I looked down, and I noticed that it went past the middle line that it never goes past. Um, I was like, oh, it can actually pass that middle line. And it started climbing faster. Well, I was about three miles from my house, and I have a decision to make. I've got to get home, or I'm going to be stranded. And so I go into what only could be called a madman role of mind state and start driving insane down 128. Because, I mean, it really is like, if you ever seen that movie back in the day, Speed, where it's like the bus can't drive enough 50 miles per hour to blow up? I was driving my car like I was in that movie. I'm like screaming at people because they're pulling in front of me because I'm just trying to get, and all along I'm driving. It's like a time bomb. I'm watching it tick slowly, higher and higher. And I'm like, if this thing gets to that red line. I don't even know. My car's going to blow up, right? I don't know. I've never seen it get to the red line before, but I'm watching it get higher and higher. I'm screaming at cars who are getting in my way. I'm wild, flying around them, and I pull up to my house and kind of just slam on brakes, and the car is like steaming, and it smells horrible, and I get there right before it hits the H, and I'm like fist pumping the air because I'm awesome. Right? And so I then do what any normal person does. I go upstairs and I start Googling um, what potentially could have made my car do that. And I'm learning about the coolant system. So I go downstairs and I open up my hood and it's like, just pours out. And I'm looking around trying to figure out, I'm like, that's the engine there. Um, liquids some sort, um, wires, and I'm kind of getting my orientation the technical way. I've got Google, thanks to the mobile device, and I'm slowly like figuring out I have a busted pipe. Um, after about five minutes of cutting myself, bleeding, and um, banging my hands in tight spaces and getting very, very upset, I figure out what the problem is. I notice that on the corner of my engine block, you like what I did there, engine block? Is this little small rectangular tube. And it's got a huge hole in it. And I'm like, that is clearly the problem. You know, and I want to call my family down and say, family, come gather around the engine block. And let me show you what I've just figured out. So at that point, I've got to kind of dig in to figure out what this piece is. And so after a little bit more um, time on Google, I figure out that this is an elbow tube for my coolant system that's attached to my engine block. And, and eventually, I find a YouTube video. Okay, so you need to know a disclaimer about me. I watch YouTube videos to figure out how to do things. Anybody else like that? I don't like to spend money. I don't want to, like, pay someone to do something that YouTube can show me how to do. You know what I mean? And so I get on YouTube, and... Uh, full disclaimer, I sent my wife a video last night 
on how to wash hair properly. Because, you know, it's just like, hey, I thought you should know this. Send it to you. And she's like, why did you, a bald man, just send me a video on how to wash your hair properly? I'm like, you should know that. That's important. Okay. Anyways, so I'm on Google and I've figured out, here's an 11-minute video on how to repair my engine. I'm like, this is marvelous. 11 minutes and this is done. Sweet, I don't have to take it to a mechanic. About 30 seconds into the video, I realize there is no way I can repair my engine. I sit down, I have a PB&J sandwich, and I continue to watch the video because at this point I'm fascinated how one would repair. That way when I go to the mechanic, I can say, yeah, so I noticed that you had to de-hitch the flux capacitor and, you know, and then slide the tube in. I was watching that on YouTube, just wanted you to know that I know what you should be doing, so don't be trying to trick me with these over hours. The guy on YouTube did it in 11 minutes, so don't be giving me no three-hour labor charge, okay? So at this point, I've like shifted focus. Um, But halfway through the video, it starts to hit me. One of the reasons this guy is able to repair this engine um, with the same problem I'm having was that he had access to tools I didn't have. Like the first one, I think I was just overwhelmed by what I saw him do very quickly where he pops the serpentine belt off and I was like, what just happened? Right? I need that thing in slow motion. But after watching it a little bit longer, I realized he keeps pulling these tools out of some like thing over here that's invisible off camera and tools that I'd never seen before. I was like, what in the world is that thing? And he's like, zee, zee, zee. And the engine just like disintegrates and just falls apart and pieces are kind of like coming off. And he's like, oh, don't touch this. It'll electrocute you. And he uses something else. And I'm like, this is, oh, this is why I can't do it. Not just because I don't have the knowledge, because I don't have the tools. It was this mindset because I'd even um, gone to AutoZone and said, hey, I saw a tool on there uh, that could help me fix it. Do you guys sell that? And he was like, yeah, we have that for $7.99. I was like, sweet. I got a $10 bill. I can pay for that. And he's like, no, $799. And I was like, oh, I don't want that. <laughs> I just want the $12 part to fix my car. And it, and it hit me that what separates amateurs and professionals oftentimes are the tools they have. Right? They, they do have a special knowledge, babe, but oftentimes they have access to something that you and I don't even know it exists. Right? Through this building campaign, there's this programs I sit down with engineers and architects, and they're using software I didn't know existed, and this is what they do every day. Uh, for me, I prepare most of the messages on software that none of you have probably ever heard of. It's what I use every time I'm working through a message. And it's something that you would never spend money to invest in because it's just overwhelming. And it's this light bulb moment. I don't just think that's true of trades out there. I think that's true in our lives too, that oftentimes what separates us from from where we are and where we want to be is that we don't have access to certain tools that can make that transition helpful. Specifically, a, a tool that I want to unpack today that I think really can make a significant difference in your life and my life. It's a question. It's a very simple question, but it's one of those tools that will take and enable you to wherever you are in this stage and give you an ability to take that next step that 
as we wrap up this series today, to give you something that's just general enough that it'll apply to almost every area of your life, from dating to your personal, professional, parenting, marriage, right, with your family, extended, with your roommates, across the board, a question general enough and helpful enough that it will allow all of us to go pro. And to discover that question, because I want to lead us on a journey to get there, we have to take a look at a story that happens 3,900 years ago in a completely different land from what you and I experience. The land of pyramids and pharaohs, this kind of distant story that is separated time and space by 3,900 years, but that if you're willing to lean into it with me, that I think what you and I will discover is that there is a very helpful question that we can pull out that can help transform and help you take that next step in your personal and professional life. Um, it's found in the book of Genesis, and, and I recognize that um, one of the things I love about this church is that there are many people who were like me in my journey, where maybe in college I didn't necessarily believe in spiritual things. I was still kind of navigating and trying to figure out some things. I was a biochemistry undergrad and was processing a lot of questions about life and faith. And, and so the book of Genesis is one of those books that I, I remember, and that for some of you, even right now, when you hear the book of Genesis, it triggers all these like, oh no, that's the crazy book these people believe, right? Adam and Eve and floods and like all this like stuff is just wrapped up. Like the first 11 chapters, I just, I can't get past the first 11 chapters. And here's what I would say to you. I'm not asking you to believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis today. I just want to encourage you, no matter where you are on the faith spectrum, to lean into this chapter and this story that I want to unpack for us today. That it's a story that I believe has the power to transform your life, even if you're not sure about the rest of the book that it's contained inside of. Just a helpful hint, um, the book of Genesis is, literally means the beginning because it's the beginning of a collection of books called the Bible, that there's 66 books in this bigger volume set that we call the Bible. The Bible is not one book, it's a collection of books, and Genesis is the first. It's a well-known, well-respected book. It's one of those great books in, in history and antiquities and literature because it has the, the birth narratives of the Jewish Christian worldview, and and it, a bulk of the book traces the lineage of a man named Abraham and his family that comes after him because Abraham is the father of the physical nation of Israel and the Jewish people, and he's also the spiritual father of Christianity. And that Abraham has a son who has a son um, who's named Jacob. And Jacob is a guy who goes by another name later in life named Israel. And that's where this spiritual, this physical nation of Israel gets their name, is from a guy named Jacob. Jacob actually has 12 sons, which is a little hard to wrap your mind around. Can you imagine having 12 sons? My mom had three, and I'm pretty sure we, we forced her to have counseling, right? And so 12 sons. Now, in the midst of that, there's 10 that's there, and they're almost all adults, and Jacob has somewhat of an accident in a recent discovery that his wife is pregnant with a new son. And the 11th in the, the process is, is named Joseph. Joseph's small, and all the other brothers are older. And Joseph, because his father's older, gets a little bit of special treatment. Uh, there's a famous Broadway play that kind of points to this, where he gets this special coat of many colors. And him wearing this coat kind of strutting around like he's a special thing, uh, invite some jealousy, and what ends up happening is this tragic incident where his brothers 
um, one day out in the field, separated from his dad and the rest of the family, sell Joseph into slavery and go home and tell their father that he was killed by an animal. And that's the storyline I want us to jump in to and pick up on, is this young man who is no older than a middle schooler who's just been sold into slavery because of the jealousy of his brothers. And he's picked up by a group of people, and he's taken um, almost 1,000-plus miles to a land where they don't speak his language, where they don't have his customs, and he's sold into the household of a man named Potiphar. And if you have the Encounter Church app, you can follow along with me. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, who was an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, and specifically was the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So Joseph has been originally purchased by these group of people known as the Ishmaelites who were slave traders. They take him down to Egypt, and one of the people at the slave market that day was Potiphar, who's a really influential, powerful man in Pharaoh's court. And this is about the 12th dynasty of the Egyptian pharaohs. Uh, This is a little south. This isn't like where you think of the Great Pyramids are today outside of Cairo. This is almost the southernmost point of the Egyptian empire at this point. Uh, This pharaoh that he's, um, who's ruling at this time, actually builds what is known as the White Pyramid, which is kind of this famous unexplored pyramid in Egyptian history. And Pharaoh is, um, Potiphar is his captain of his guard. Potiphar purchases Joseph Joseph's a young kid, and he starts to notice something. In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. You see, uh, something about Joseph was that Joseph seemed to have God's favor. Everything Joseph did just worked out well. Things just turned out good for Joseph. Whatever he was entrusted with prospered, and Potiphar starts to notice that. Right In verse 3, it says, When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. So what we see kind of unfolding is that Joseph is really gifted. God's hand is on him. He's being blessed. Everything he touches works out. And Potiphar notices, and he begins to get constant promotions. He goes from being purchased at a slave, which would have meant a little bit more lowly duties around the house. Potiphar notices everything he does, he does well. And so then he makes it into his household, and he's now a household slave, but he keeps doing that well. And now he goes from being a household slave to now he's in charge of the house overall. Now he's Potiphar's right-hand man. Potiphar is no longer even worrying about anything in his home. The only thing Potiphar thinks about when he wakes up in the morning is, hmm, what am I going to eat? Right, And if you happen to be a teenager in the room, that's where you are right now. And I would encourage you to stay there. That's a good place to be in life, isn't it? For the adults in the room, our first thought when we wake up in the morning for our biggest problem of the day is not, what am I going to eat today? But that's how good Joseph is managing everything. The only thing Potiphar worries about is, should I have this or this for lunch? But 
the problem is, is that Potiphar is not the only one noticing Joseph. You get a little bit of a hint when we read that Joseph is both well-built and handsome. The writer of Genesis is wanting to understand something about Joseph. It's not that he just looks good right here. He looks good from here all the way down. That's why it uses two different descriptors. It says he's handsome, he's pleasant in face, and he's well-built, which is he's pleasant in form. This is the exact phrase that my wife uses when she describes me to her friends. (laughs) And why are you laughing? (laughs) Okay, I'll talk to my counselor about that later, right? But this is what describes Joseph. He looks like a model. And Potiphar's wife starts to notice Joseph too. In verse 7, we kind of pick up on this. And after a while, his wife, his master's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Pretty direct. Because he's a slave. He doesn't really have the power or authority to turn down or to reject. He's property in this household. He's not a person. He's property. And she keeps propositioning, keeps pressing. She keeps persistently saying, hey, trying to catch him. In verse 8, you see that he refuses. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked and a wicked thing and sin against God. And it says, though she spoke to him day after day, he refused. Not only just to to acknowledge her proposition, but to even be with her, period. He starts to avoid her until what eventually happens is one day he goes into his house, he goes into Potiphar's house to, to execute the duties he has, and there's no other servants or slaves around, and it's just him and her. And she essentially tries to assault him. And he has to run out of the house without any clothes in order to flee her. And this is where Joseph's life now is. To top it off, she, because she has his cloak, begins to make allegations that everyone else believes. That everyone else thinks that this slave has tried to assault this high-ranking official's wife. And people believe it because, let's just be honest, that's the the normal narrative, isn't it? That's the narrative that you expect a slave boy who has nothing going for him in his life to play out. Everyone else believes it. And I think the reason that people would tend to believe that narrative is because most of the time, if we're not careful, our brain default, our default operating of our brain is to make decisions based on two things. The seeking out of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. To oversimplify, but to dig into your decision-making and mine, most of the time, if we're not careful, our decisions are based on one of those two things. We avoid conversations with our spouse because we don't want the pain of what might happen. Right? We turn to a substance or to television to get pleasure to numb the pain. I mean, this operating default of our brain tends to be what guides most of us in our decision-making if we're not being careful. You see, I've seen it read, and I think this captures it succinctly, that our brain tends to be 
better suited for survival, not success. And that's why everyone believes the narrative. They're like, oh, yeah, avoidance of pain, seeking of pleasure, of course this is what he does. But that's not what he does. He runs. He chooses success, not survival. He chooses purpose. He makes this very purposeful decision instead of trying for pleasure or pain. And this is the moment that I want to dig into because underneath his response and reaction is a whole way of understanding the world and a question that I think has the impact to to make a difference in our own lives. You see, I believe that we are all faced with moments like this quite regularly. It may not be nearly as dramatic, but they're just as decisive. It may not be in the realm of physical attraction. It may not be this storyline played out, but the subtext does, where we make a decision where we sacrifice our future for something in the present that we later regret. That we... we shortchange what we could have in the future for what we have to have in the present. That many of us, even though we are no longer toddlers, we still have that toddler instinct in us that screams and declares, I want it now. Even if what we want isn't for our best. And that's why I think this Joseph story can be so powerful is because Joseph does something that goes completely against the grain of what most of us would choose in a similar moment. And so why does, why does he do what he, why does he say what he says? Why do he, he does, what does he, like, I think when you read the Bible, you should interrogate the text. Like, the Christians, so if you're a Christian in this room, we should be people, when we read the Bible, that give it a greater scrutiny than anyone else. Because we really believe these words. We think these words have life and hope. I think we should be mindful, thoughtful readers when we read the text. Not just, like, kind of, we're not brainwashed. We're not just following it. We, we engage with it because we really believe there's life tucked inside of it. And when you read this story, there's something I think that jumps out if you're being thoughtful about it. And it's Joseph's response. Why does he respond the way he responds? It's, it's really a weird response, right? He doesn't just say, no, get away from me. He doesn't blow some whistle and scream for help. He responds to her with this really interesting, he says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care, and no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked and sinful things against God? His response actually points to two different issues he takes with her. And it's in his response that I think that there's the, the rabbit hole that when you go down it and you start to understand why he responded, it opens up this whole world for you and I to learn from. The first thing he seems to take issue with is that she's challenging him to, to lead poorly. Like He's like, look, the master's given me all of this to govern. And to do this would be, I wouldn't be faithful in governing if I do this. He takes issue with that. 
And then he takes issue with what the actual request is. He's like, no, that would be, that would be wrong. That goes against my faithfulness to God. He has these two different reasons for why he responds the way he responds. And to get that answer is to go back in Joseph's history. And if you were to flip back a couple chapters and you were to read Joseph's life, what you would see is that Joseph, in his early years, had a very defining moment. He was captured by a dream of being a leader one day that was both faithful in how he led and faithful to God in how he did it. That if you go back in Joseph's story, when he was little, he dreamed about being a leader, a really great leader, and he talks about it. It's actually that him talking about that dream he has that makes his brothers even more jealous. He has a dream of being a great leader and following what he believed to be his great God. And this woman and her request violated both of those two directional compass points in his life. When he was a young boy, he had already decided what he was going to be known for and what, what was going to define who he was, was how he was going to lead and his faithfulness to the Lord. And this is really critical because Joseph had decided beforehand what he valued in life. So he wasn't as swayed in those moments where his desires roared or when opportunities knocked. He didn't react he had already decided. And that's why I think Joseph responds the way he responds. Is he wanted to be faithful in how he governs, and he wanted to be faithful to God. And those two directional markers for his life influence the decisions he makes. If you notice, right, that it's not just that he says no to her the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth time. He then starts to avoid her. He's like this crazy woman. He doesn't even get around her at all. He starts to organize his schedule to avoid being in her presence. And it's only when she finally corners him and that he's stuck that she finally have an opportunity to ask again. And this time she makes a move and he runs out of the house without any clothes because that's what happens when you have your cloak taken. So it doesn't just define these directional markers for his life. It influences the decisions he makes. And so I want to transfer that into our lives I want to consolidate it for where you and I are. Is there's actually two questions I want to give you. The second's the powerful one, but the second one only has teeth if you've answered the first one. So here's the first one. And I would encourage you to write this down, put it in the notes, because this is a critical question you and I have to answer. Is what, what do you want to describe the me you want to be? Or to say it even simpler, what describes the me you want to be? When you think about your future, when you think about your life, when you think about that future me, what are the words? What are the descriptors? What do you want people to say about that future me? And I think that's important to ask. Most of us have never sat down and reflected, where do I want my life to end up? Where do I want my life to go? When I have a funeral service, there's going to be that day. What will people say about me? Because it'll be that day where your life is taken in measure by those people who know you. It's that day that those words will hopefully be used to describe you. But what words do you want to use? What characteristics, what traits should describe the me you want to be? If you answer that question, then I think you're in position 
to answer the second one. For me, I've already answered that question. And I'll go ahead and tell you what both of mine are. Just because this is something I think is critical for us making these decisions that lead to a life of better, better decisions than fewer regrets. And one is that as a, a Christian, I sincerely believe that there will be a day I take my last breath on planet Earth and that the name of Jesus in that moment becomes the face of Jesus. That Jesus, the name, will become Jesus, the face that I'm looking into. And in that moment, I want so desperately for my eyes to look into his eyes and with all of what comes with that, for him to say, well done. You did a great job, buddy. Come on in. Like, I, I think that most of us, quite honestly, never move past that part in our heart as a child who just wants our parents to be proud of us. Not proud means loved. I know I'm loved. My daughter knows she's loved. But there's still those moments where she works really hard and she comes into the room and she slides that piece of art in front of me and she says, look, Daddy, what I made for you. And I swell up and I say, well done, darling. And I deep down inside want that from him to me. I'm just being very honest and candid with you. And I know for some of you that is like craziest thing in the world that my entire life is being lived for an imaginary creature to say, well done, in your mind. But I'm telling you, from the core of my belief, I believe that, that that day that we all have, that name will become a face, and I want that face to look at my face and say, well done. And then my second is that I want those who know me the best to love and respect me the most. I've watched a lot of people live their lives where people who did not know them the most or the best respect them the most. And the ones who did know them the best respect them the least. And we're watching that play out in our personal life right now, and it is, it, is, it is breaking our family's heart, watching someone make those kind of decisions, where people around them respect them more than us who are part of him. And I'm like, I, I love you, but I don't really... What drives me is not that you stand around my deathbed one day and you respect me the most. It's that my wife and my daughter, my family, the ones who watched me up close, say that's, that's the guy I respect the most. That's the guy I love the most because he was more real off stage than he ever was on stage. On stage, he was limited by his ability to speak, but off stage, he was not limited because he just lived what he believed full out. And that those two determining goalposts in the ground, set the, the trajectory, the direction of my life. That's how I want to live my life. And it influences the decisions. And so when you answer that question, it enables you to do this. It enables you to ask this question, to have this question in your back pocket and any moment be ready to say it. When that moment happens, I believe what was going on underneath the surface for Joseph was Joseph was presented with this, this proposition. And subconsciously, it was like, will this help me be the me I want to be? Will this help me be the me I want to be? And the answer is no. No, this will not help me be the me I want to be. The me I want to be is faithful in how I lead and faithful in, in my love for the Lord. And this moment, everything about this moment goes completely against what I want out of my life. And so what does he do? He runs from it. Because when you know where you want to go, you are able 
to make sure you don't turn on those paths that take you away from it. And that's what he had. And so for you, I would write this second question down, right? Whether you like, if you, maybe you're like me, you like things that rhyme because you're a poet at heart, right? Or a wannabe rapper at heart. Um, will this help me be the me I want to be? Or to reduce it even uh, kind of a little bit more succinctly in the words of one of my mentors, uh, what is the wise thing to do? And I love this question. I use this question a lot. This question is that tool that I pull out almost daily in my decision making. Because it has an ability to break through the emotions. It has an ability to break through the moment. has the ability to over, kind of override that inner toddler in me that wants to scream, I want this now. It has an ability for me to push away from things that will take me away from what I want to be or the places I want to go. That this question to get really practical is when you start attaching things to it. So in light of your past, is this the wise thing to do? In light of that past struggle with alcohol, is the wise thing to do really to say yes to the guys who want to go to Vegas this weekend? Like, is there a better way to hang out that doesn't involve me putting myself around things that could derail me. And look, what I love about it is that's not like right or wrong. Maybe you're like, I don't really know if I believe in the Christian moral set, but it goes beyond that. This says for you, in light of where you've come from, is this the best decision? Is this the wise thing to do? Other people may be able to do the exact same thing, and it's not unwise for them. But for you, in light of your past, is this the wise thing to do? And in light of the fact that you just came through a divorce is jumping into a relationship right now, the best thing for you to do. See, it's, it's so powerful because you can press it into your finances. You can press it into your personal life. You can take it into your workspace. It's portable. In light of my present, I just got married, right? Do is the wise thing to do to say, Bye, honey, I'm going to go hang out with the guys every night this week and drink and play video games. Is that the wise thing to do? Probably not the best move if you've just gotten married to not spend time with your wife and hang out with the guys playing video games like you used to do. It wasn't anything wrong with it, but is that the wise thing to do? Is that, is that going to help you build this relationship that you want to build? That it really has an ability to pull back all those things that distract, distract, detract, and gives us clarity. It's one of those questions that breaks through and I think even helps guide us into our future. In light of your future, hopes and dreams, and where you want to go, that first question, what do you want to describe you? Is, is it wise? Is this the wise thing to do? If you want to be known for your generosity, or you want to be known for the way that you're open with your time and your resources and that you're just this person that people can trust, then are you making decisions in alignment with that? For me to go back to what I said are some of my values, it means I say no to things. Or sometimes it means that things get produced at a level that I'm not okay with because I'm not fighting for their approval. I want to make sure that those who know me the best and love me like those who are closest to me respect me the most. 
That means I say no to dinner appointments sometimes because I have a certain amount of meals that I'm going to eat every week at home. Again, that's not for you. That's for me because this is where I want to go. And what's wise for me is to make decisions that take me there. That it gives us an ability to say, okay, this is the kind of spouse I want to be or this is the kind of parent I want to be. Then what's the wise thing to do in this moment? I'd, maybe you're like, I, I grew up in a household where guilt, condemnation, and shame was the way that things were driven and the way decisions were pressed onto me. And I always felt like I was a little less then that means if you, you want to react and you want to lead where grace is what defines your household, where it's not guilt and shame and condemnation, but you want to lead differently, that means that in those moments when you have an opportunity to parent or discipline your child, that you in that moment are taking steps towards that place. It means if you want to be faithful to your spouse, that means you don't go out with the coworker after work. I mean, you just start to press into places. And this is a question that I think has an ability to do what happened to Joseph for, for it to happen to you and me as well. It helps us pick better potential mates because you're like, you know, they're cute. They seem to have the handsome and well-built thing going for them, but they make really stupid decisions. And when I think about my life 15 years from now, I don't think well-built and handsome, and let's just be real, well-built and handsome does not last for 15 years, okay? My wife's working on 12, just saying, that at a certain point, like, that character starts to become a lot more important than that well-built and handsome, because that fades away, and it's, okay, is this, is this how I can see my life going? Is this the type of spouse I want? I mean, this question keeps poking its head into every area of our life, and I think it's one of these general tools that can make a difference. And here's why. Because none of us, right, none of us ever sat down and said, I want to wreck my life. I want to destroy my marriage. I want, to, I want my kids to hate me. I want to be riddled with debt. I want to make sure that everyone around me, around me knows that I'm untrustworthy, I'm undependable. Like, that's my life goals. Like, none of us sat down and wrote those things on a sheet of paper. No one, no one, no one plans to ruin their life. But the problem is no one plans not to. And this question allows you to plan not to. For that moment when it pops up, that moment that could ruin your life, you've already decided beforehand and you've got the tool in your back pocket to pull out in the moment that protects you from that moment completely ruining and destroying. I mean, this question is powerful. I've been practicing this question for almost 10 years now. And it has saved me from destroying my marriage. It has saved me from destroying our finances. It has saved me from countless other things. Just being very candid with you. Because when you know where you want to go, and you have a tool to guide you that way, and you're willing to use it, what you find is that you have a plan not to ruin your life in place. And you've got the tool to help you. And I, while I say all of that, I, I recognize that for some of us, the easy question, the, the easy response, homework, is just to answer the question. What kind of me do I want to be? And then to start practicing this week, answering that, asking that question regular, will this help me be the me I want to be? But there are some of us in this room who 
don't even get to this point because you're at a place where you're like, you know, I wish I'd had this question 20 years ago. Because I know, like you, that the moments I regret most in my life, if I could jump into a time machine, show up right now and say, hey, 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 young, beautifully haired Chris, let, let me ask you this one question before you take that moment, before you go to that spring break trip, before you spend that night, before you say yes to, to that invitation, is this the wise thing to do? That I think that most of the moments in my life that I regret the most, I would have probably been spared from them. And I think you, if you had had this question in your life and you'd asked it in that moment and listened, you'd have probably been spared from your most painful regrets too. And that the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of the message of what we just celebrated a few weeks ago at Easter is that through the cross and the resurrection, there is freedom and there's forgiveness from our past. That there is freedom and there is forgiveness from our regrets. That what we have done in the past or what we have done even into the present does not have to define us, categorize us. It does not have to set and determine our future. That there is a God that I sincerely believe because of the cross and because of him coming back from the dead has the ability to step into your life the way he stepped into mine and to hit not just reset, but to completely redefine and to resurrect those broken parts of your heart. To take even the broken things and to somehow in the midst bring beauty out of them. That that's the beauty of the Christian story. That's the declaration of Easter. And that for some of you, the homework, before you even get to these two questions, is to go back and watch the Easter service a couple weeks ago. And just let that sink in at a deeper level. Or to own the connection card, say, hey, I'm interested in um, exploring faith more. Or I have some questions that, or some doubts that I've always wrestled through that I'd like a safe place to ask. To, to, to click on the connection card. And for some of you, I, I've even loaded up, uh, like I said last week, I put a video in the app under the Exploring Faith icon so, so that you can have a private space and place to process through these questions of faith and life and, and have a safe place to ask some of those things that maybe you haven't been able to ask or think about before. But whatever it is, here's what I know, that all of us with this message, with this tool, have a next step we can take. And so what we're going to do to respond is the band's going to come out. I'm going to pray over us real quick. And the band's going to come out, and they're going to lead us in a song. And this song is meant to guide us. Okay, full disclosure, I kept you a little bit longer because I know there's a race going by. And I know you're going to be trapped anyway. And if you're going to be trapped, I said, let's go deep, okay? <laughs> the worst thing is it'd be better sitting in here in air conditioning in your car um, screaming at people running by, and you're stuck. Um, and so I, I want to pray over you because I think there's a next step for all of us. Who's the me that you want to be? Will this help me be the me I want to be? And I, have I ever looked at the message of Christianity as the chain breaker, the declaration that I can be free and forgiven? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you care about us, that you desire that our lives would be marked with life and hope, forgiveness and freedom and grace, 
that you, you care about how we live our lives and that you aren't out to, to get us, but that you, as a good father, desire something for us. And I, I pray that even now, that in our hearts and our minds, that you would begin to help us pull out those moments, those future moments, those future words that we hope would describe us one day. That you would in our hearts start to pull out those moments that we've allowed to imprison us, those regrets that we've allowed to define us. And that with the beauty of the Easter story of the cross and the resurrection, that you would remind us that in you and faith in you, there's freedom and there's forgiveness. And I pray that we would go out of this room today as people committed to going pro, to taking that next step in our personal lives, our professional lives, with a powerful tool to help us in that journey. And thank you for that tool. Thank you for that question. Thank you for that care that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And uh, I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. Uh, the band's going to lead us. And in the midst of this kind of response time, it's, it's there, like I said, for us to be able to process through questions those questions that I gave you in the midst of the message. It's also a place for, you'll notice there's a basket being um, pushed around. And that's also there for, for those who maybe want to use the connection card and you say, hey, will you pray for me? Will you pray this week? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to go to lunch. I'm going to sit down with a journal or a notebook or my phone. And I'm going to start to write the words I want to describe me. Will you, will you just pray for me to, to even like have some idea of what those words could be? And this is where you could write on the connection card, hey, will you pray for me to know what those words should be for the future me? And you can even make it rhyme like that. Make it even easier for me. Hey, or for those who maybe um, are here for the first time, you say, look, I just want to get to know more about this church and I want for you to get to know me. This is where on the connection card, you can just fill it out, drop it in the basket. For those who call Encounter Church home, we carve out this space for us to practice generosity. One of the things that marks this church in who we are is that we're generous people. We make a difference. That we believe a church should be known for what they do for, period, not what they take from. And so we practice that generosity because we as a people practice that generosity weekly in, in this space that we carve out. And then for some of you, maybe it's, uh, hey, I want to jump in. I want to start serving. That Whatever that next step for you, even if it doesn't necessarily apply from the message, the app or that sheet, can be um, your next step for you to drop in as you pass through. So um, band's going to lead us. We're going to sing, respond, and then someone will be up to close us out as we go into our day.